edition of With All Due Respect. Strong opinions on politics, life, and entertainment. Welcome to this episode of With All Due Respect. I am your host, Andrew Haukro. With me, as always, is my co-host with the very most, Van Sanders. Mr. Sanders, what is the good word today, sir? The good word is we have more light in the evenings, and that's a massively good word. Also, um, I put together an app that is extra dorky. I just wanted to give it a little airtime here. If there are any nerds out there who are really fascinated by um, natural selection and replication, yeah. Um, Well, I made a 3D uh, natural selection simulator that you can check out on your iPad or Mac on the App Store. It's called RepSim, all one word, RepSim. So anyway, there's my little plug. Uh, I warn you, though, it's very dorky. You can also see a preview of it on my website. Excellent. As always, we'd like to thank the Anchorage Daily News for hosting our podcast on their website and remind listeners that the very strong opinions you hear on this podcast are mine and mine alone and in no way, shape, or form represent the opinions of the Anchorage Daily News or their employees. On this episode of With All Due Respect, we hear echoes of the great Yogi Berra. It's deja vu all over again. With the price of oil skyrocketing, many, including the governor and state lawmakers, have been calling for an oil development renaissance. So, is it going to be drill, baby, drill? Or is the reality more chill, baby, chill? We'll discuss. In entertainment, if you are a Boston Red Sox fan or know a Boston Red Sox fan, I am here to exercise your demons. For 86 years, Red Sox fans lived with the mythical curse of the Bambino. So ladies and gentlemen, I am going to share a book today that will hopefully help my fellow members of the Red Sox nation heal decades of trauma. And finally, in closing comments, it's time to eliminate the prohibition on licensed cannabis stores in Eagle River. I'll discuss while it's time to let private investment in and drive the black market out. Who's there? Dave. Dave's not here, man. So let's talk some politics. Politics. And now, for some politics. Politics. In politics, for Alaska state lawmakers in Juneau, it's boom shakalaka time. With oil prices booming due to the geopolitical fallout from the banning of Russian oil imports, Alaska policymakers are promoting the potential of a development renaissance in Alaska's oil fields. So, is this realistic? Or is this just another diversion from modernizing Alaska's economy? Over the last few weeks, state and congressional leaders have seized on recent events to advocate Alaska oil production to help America with its domestic energy production. Okay, so we are an oil-producing state. So, if ever there was a time to expect oil producers to look at Alaska for oil development, it's now, right? With changes in the way the world views Russia and the dramatic realignment of energy supplies, now is the time for Alaska to capitalize, right? So is this even realistic? 
Well, over the last 20 years, Alaska's relationship with the oil and gas industry has changed. First, oil revenue has stopped being the primary funding source for state government. Today, the state budget is carried by investment earnings from the Permanent Fund Corporation. Second, the industry itself has changed. A number of the original major oil and gas explorers have moved on, leaving their older fields to smaller, more nimble industry operators. For over 20 years, it's been widely acknowledged that the big, easy fields, you know, the fields where you just back up a truck and stick a straw on the ground, those no longer exist. And we recognize that future oil development will depend on small to medium companies exploring and developing new fields, smaller, harder-to-reach fields. So with a recognition that Alaska needed to attract more independent companies, the state has worked very hard over the last decade to attract small and medium players into Alaska's oil patch. For instance, we've invested over $9 billion in oil tax credits from 2012 to 2021. While some of those have paid dividends to the state treasury, others have been a loss. Meanwhile, state lawmakers must then find the money to pay for these tax credits every year, regardless of the budget situation or the price of oil. So as a state, we have tried just about everything to attract new explorers to Alaska, and the results have really lacked any significant movement to the needle. So what is actually on the horizon with all this talk about an oil renaissance? Where is that oil coming from? Well, currently, there is a feeling that Alaska's final two oil booms are concentrated in two remaining fields, Willow and Pika. The first is Willow, which is owned by ConocoPhillips and is the largest standalone oil development on the North Slope in more than 20 years. Willow is estimated to provide more than 160,000 barrels of oil per day at peak production. The project is currently stalled to address a recent court ruling, and while ConocoPhillips remains committed to the project, no timeline for startup has been given. The second potential is PICA. PICA would produce 80,000 barrels a day from its first phase that could begin within three years. PICA is recognized as the field that would have the quickest impact on Alaska's bottom line. The development has been hampered by a change in ownership and difficulties in obtaining road access, but the company CEO expressed confidence in the project just three weeks ago. Speaking on an earnings call with investors, Santos CEO Kevin Gallagher stated they still believed PICA was profitable at $40 per barrel, and they intended to proceed forward towards a final investment decision later this year. Okay, so let's say PICA's access issues are all solved and everything is teed up for the marketplace for financing. Does that mean that PICA then becomes Alaska's litmus test? I mean, if there were ever a time for new companies to invest in Alaska, now would be the time, right? Here you have the company's CEO telling investors that the field pencils at $40 per barrel and the current price just spiked at, what, $125 per barrel? So it certainly seems like drill baby drill should be an appropriate chant. However... That's not how the oil and gas industry will make its decision, especially in today's uncertain times. When asked if high oil prices would influence their decision, PICA CEO said, quote, We won't fall in love with high oil prices. Our focus is very much on the low cost of supply and driving cash returns. Gallagher's comments make complete sense because ConocoPhillips CEO Ryan Lance echoed the same thing the prior week. Quote, we've got to make sure the capital we spend generates an adequate return for our shareholders. Then Conoco's CEO added a word of caution, saying prices were at the level where consumers would start to push back and people are going to start conserving energy and changing their behavior. So clearly, You've heard a cautious tone from both CEOs who control Alaska's most promising oil developments.
Now, back to the prospects of PICA. Aside from the real challenges of finding financing for Arctic projects, PICA's return horizon might be a tough ask from investors. If you're an investor, you need to be prepared to wait for startup between 2022 and 2025 and then wait for production from 2025 to 2030 before seeing a return. Eight years is a long return horizon, especially given no one knows what the price of oil will do and for how long. So again, while we want another oil boom, we have to recognize the industry has changed, but the reality of uncertainty, it hasn't. In order to understand all of this better, we need context. And in order to get some context, we need a history lesson. Mr. Sanders, would you please do what you do so well? A history lesson. Since the 1960s, Alaska has hooked our wagon to oil development. We've lived well and not so well off the fluctuating price of a non-renewable resource. Alaskans have spent years of partying hard, only to be followed by years of being completely hungover. For the last 30 years, Alaska's budgets have not been determined based on measurements of success or even basic demand, but instead based on the price of a barrel of oil that given year. And ladies and gentlemen, let's look at where that's gotten us. Oil reached its peak in 1989 at 2 million barrels per day. In the 1990s, we heard the echoes of the no decline after 99, but that wasn't to be. When I left the Alaska State Legislature in 2002, we were down to pumping just 1 million barrels per day. And today, 20 years later, we're down to 530,000 barrels per day. Let me repeat that timeline. In 1989, 2 million barrels per day. In 2002, 1 million barrels per day. In 2022, 530,000 barrels per day. Since the early 1990s, Alaska's oil production has been declining. Meanwhile, governors for the last 30 years have struggled to create any type of sustained investments in Alaska. Beginning in 1990, Governor Wally Hickel spent four years cutting the budget. Governor Tony Knowles spent eight years cutting the budget. Governor Frank Murkowski spent four years cutting the budget. Governor Sarah Palin spent two years enjoying high oil prices. Governor Sean Purnell spent four years enjoying high oil prices. Governor Bill Walker spent four years cutting the budget. And of course, Governor Dunleavy has spent the last three years cutting the budget. Ladies and gentlemen, you hear that pattern? Do you hear that pattern of behavior for the last three decades? Cut, cut, cut. Spend, spend. Cut, cut. For 30 years, we have continued to basically live paycheck to paycheck in our inability to make long-term commitments to things like education and community support have left us with a shrinking population in a state that continues to live paycheck to paycheck. Look, 20 years ago when I was in the state legislature, former U.S. Senator Ted Stevens would go crazy and push back on critics that would complain that Alaska received too much from the federal government. Stevens would argue, hey, we are a young state. Alaska is a young state, and we haven't had the decades of federal support that other states have enjoyed. So while Stevens was leveraging federal money for infrastructure, the state was supposed to be seizing that opportunity to get its own legs, knowing that one day the federal largesse would be gone. (laughs) There was just one problem. The state didn't hold up its end of the bargain. During that same period, the state lived paycheck to paycheck, burning through savings and failing to adopt the slightest semblance of fiscal stability. Now, here we are two decades later, and this time it's U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski and billions in federal infrastructure funds that have saved Alaska's economy. 
Man, this cycle of dependency never ends. So, you'd hope after almost 30 years of living budget to budget, we'd remember history. And yet, with a recent spike in oil prices, Juno is once again showing that binge behavior. We're going to send out a bonus PFD. We're going to increase spending. We're going to make commitments that we'll be unable to afford in three years, just like we've done for the last 30 years. Alaska's next oil boom remains a question mark with existing key projects like Willow and Pika up in the air, so the hyperbole about Alaska having an oil renaissance needs to be tempered. Given the current-day challenges that explorers and producers face in the Arctic oil development, including financing, green demands from shareholders, and public opposition, the false hope of another boom takes away from the reality that we've been waiting for a boom since 1986, and it's yet to happen. But today, there is still so much opportunity to change our ways. Not only with current high oil prices and with stable production numbers, but with the influx of federal money for infrastructure, the table is set for Alaska's next governor to have a great opportunity to craft long-range plans. That includes K-12, University of Alaska, while leveraging that federal money with state and private resources. Alaska's next governor will have an amazing opportunity to move Alaska forward, provided once again by the gift of high oil prices and the gift of federal largesse. For the last three decades, we've been losing ground while praying for the next oil field to be our savior. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no more saviors. The only thing left is the hard work of creating the modern economy that we should have begun to build decades ago. And today, with high oil prices and billions in federal infrastructure money, this is our chance. And now, entertainment. Entertainment. In entertainment, if you are a Boston Red Sox fan, you know heartbreak. 1975, Joe Morgan. 1978, Bucky Dent. 1986, Mookie Wilson. Every time it seemed like it would finally be our moment, the mythical curse of the Bambino rose up to snatch it away. For Red Sox nation believers, the curse represented our worst fears. Our fears that the baseball gods were really punishing us because we traded away the great Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees in 1918. But you know what? There was no curse. There was never any curse. In fact, Babe Ruth won the same amount of World Series with the Red Sox as he did with the Yankees. The curse was just an excuse for 50 years of bad Red Sox management led by an alcoholic and racist owner who picked coaches and players based on who he liked to drink with. After a lifetime of being a diehard Red Sox fan, after decades of trauma inflicted by late-inning collapses and seventh-game losses, I have been healed. And more importantly, you can too. The book is called It Was Never About the Babe, The Red Sox Racism, Mismanagement, and the Curse of the Bambino. Written by Jerry Gutlin, it checks in at 296 pages. If you are a Boston Red Sox fan, you must read this book and everything, everything will be explained. It's like 296 pages of pure therapy. For instance, I wasn't aware that Babe Ruth became insufferable, and due to league politics, the Red Sox had no other team to trade him to other than the Yankees. Or, I wasn't aware that Jackie Robinson originally tried out for the Red Sox before the Brooklyn Dodgers, but he was brushed off by Red Sox management who wanted to keep the team all white. 
Again, the book is called It Was Never About the Babe, The Red Sox, Racism, Mismanagement, and the Curse of the Bambino. Listen to me, please. If you're a loyal Red Sox fan, get this book now because your healing awaits. It's time for Eagle Reefer. It has been over five years since retail cannabis shops became legal in Anchorage, and the success of the industry has been clear. From 2017 to 2022, local cannabis taxes increased from $1.2 million in 2017 to $5.8 million last year. The industry has generated thousands of jobs, provided tens of millions in local investment, and provided one of the very few streams of growing tax revenue to both the city and the state. In addition, over the last five years, the industry has also dispelled the myths about cannabis stores. Long gone are the worries that groups of stoners would hang out on street corners or that legalization of cannabis would be the end of public safety as we know it. In fact, the industry has shown itself to be quite capable of being responsible owners and community members. Now, full disclosure, I am the past board chair of Great Northern Cannabis, Alaska's largest cannabis company, and today I still serve on the board of directors. Unfortunately, the cannabis industry's success story hasn't reached everywhere. In fact, one area in particular has been completely shut out. After Alaskans approved the legalization of cannabis in 2014, local communities went to work to establish zoning rules to determine where cannabis shops can be located. During the debate in Anchorage, former Eagle River Assemblymember Amy Dimboski placed into law a provision that has basically made opening a cannabis store in Eagle River virtually impossible. Dimboski's personal legacy has been to deny Eagle River residents access to a completely legal product in some Puritan quest to shield grown adults. Now, five years later, Amy Dimboski doesn't even live in Eagle River anymore. She lives in Wasilla with a cannabis store just a mile from her new house. Dimboski's protectionism has done little more than keep the private sector and local investment out while allowing the black market to thrive. Meanwhile, Dimboski's successor continues living on cannabis industry taxes while demonizing the cannabis industry. Last week, Eagle River Assemblymember Jamie Allard, in a warning about the dangers of cannabis stores, posted a picture of a young white teen smoking a joint that's being lit by an older black male. Now, without commenting on the racial inference of Allard's photo, if her worst fear is truly that older, sketchy Eagle River residents are going to be corrupting school kids, then Allard herself has just made the case for cannabis to be sold in legal setting where it can be controlled and regulated instead of continuing to protect the black market. And all of this comes at the same time that Allard has no problem spending the $5.8 million in taxes the cannabis industry provides. It's time to end the prohibition on cannabis stores in Eagle River. For an assembly member that hijacks every single social issue to preach freedom, it's time for Jamie Allard to allow the 29,000 residents of Eagle River to have the same freedom that every other Anchorage neighborhood has. It's time to open up Eagle River to more private investment, more jobs, and more freedom, while at the same time addressing a very active black market. And there is the music, ladies and gentlemen, and you know what that means. Please remember to subscribe to us on your favorite platform. That way you will not miss an episode of our podcast. Van, how about throwing us your website details? 
Yes, if you go to abodabobrand.com, that's A-B-O-D-A-B-O-B-R-A-N-D.com, you can reach out to me, see some past work I did, including RepSim, the natural selection simulator I made. That's abodabobrand.com. And there is our time, ladies and gentlemen, and we thank you for yours.